Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's episode is about kindergarten admissions. That's right, kindergarten admissions, because it is really intense in some of the cities in this country and in other countries. Getting into private school has become a really big thing. And so this time of year, a lot of schools are making their choices and parents have to come to decisions about where they're sending their children to school. And many of them haven't been able to see the schools in person. So we're going to talk about making that decision. And also for those of you who are going to go through this process in the spring and fall, I want to give you the benefit of Jamie Bacall, who is an educator and top school consultant. Now, if you are not thinking about private school and this seems totally irrelevant, you can skip this section and move right to listener Q&A. But I did want to answer your questions and make sure that I got the best information to you possible. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Jamie. And I always want to hear from you. So the questions at the end of this episode are from your DMs on Instagram. And I really love hearing from you. So keep those coming. And I really do try to get to them. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate to subscribe and rate and even write a little review if you have time. This year in particular, people right as we speak are about to make their decisions for what schools to go to, and they have not been able to see those schools. So I want to address that, like choosing the school, the kindergarten that's right for your kid. Can you know what kind of learner they are at that age? And then we can go into the process for people who are going to go through this next year. I believe that a large majority of four and five-year-old kids will do fine in any kindergarten environment. It really comes down to what parents want to provide for their child. Obviously, as a child gets older, it becomes very obvious who they are, how they learn, what their interests are, et cetera. Now, that said, there still are a good handful of kids that do need something more specific. They might need more structure. Um, they might need something that's more rote memorization, or they might need, need something that's more experiential, hands-on. But Overall, at a kindergarten level, the vast majority of kids will do fine anywhere. It really comes down to what parents want to provide for their children. What can parents do 
now when they're thinking about what they're looking to, like what, I guess when you say what parents want to provide for their child, do you mean what kind of school environment they want to provide, what they're responding to in the particular school? A community, teachers, pedagogy, learning approach, learning philosophies, how much arts, how much sports, how much well-rounded of different things. Is there a foreign language at an elementary school? Um, is it a K through six? Is it a K through eight? Is it a K through 12? All different factors that play into it. And what everyone wants is different as it should be because it'd be pretty boring if we all wanted the same thing. So are people just looking at catalogs right now and trying to assess what's real versus what's in the catalog? It is, and it's hard because A, not everyone practices what they preach. Um, A lot of it is just copy on a piece of paper. But I think that the best advice I can offer people is if figure out a way if you can to talk to parents, current parents at the school um, and parents who are willing to be honest and talk to you about the strengths of a school as well as the challenges of a school because no school is perfect, you know, and all the schools are amazing for the right kid and the right family. And if you talk to parents who are in the experience and I wouldn't talk to a kindergarten family whose only experience has been since September having their kid there on Zoom, I'd talk to a family that's been at the school um, and really experienced the school and experienced the community and the teachers and administration, um, you know, and ask these parents questions. How responsive is a teacher or administration if there's an issue? How much is the learning differentiated for the kids? You know, how how are field trips structured? Um, How are social situations fostered? Do they, you know, preach kindness? Do they teach kindness? What does diversity, equity, and inclusion look like at a school? All of these things matter, but I think the perspective of a parent who's lived it is going to be more real than a website. And can you tell the kind of academic experience that a child will have from the, are there any like code words in the website that will give you a sense if it's more more traditional or more progressive? And also let's define traditional versus progressive. So traditional and progressive are pretty broad terms. I think in the sense of what most people think of when they think of traditional in a classic sense of from an older time where a lot is learned through rote memorization. Um, Kids are lectured, they take notes, they memorize the information, they're tested on Friday and they move on. I think there are fewer and fewer schools that only embody that. I think even the most traditional schools have started to incorporate a bit more experiential learning for students from a young age all the way through. There are still those that at the core of who they are are traditional, but have definitely shied away from just pure rote memorization. Progressive education, and again, it's somewhat of a spectrum, but it's much more experiential, hands-on learning. Classrooms are much more child-focused. They're discussion-based. A lot of, you know, at a high school level, that's Socratic method. Um, At a lower school level, it's where kids are talking about things and they're voicing their opinions and sharing opinions and discussing things rather than just being lectured. They're doing a lot of projects. They're doing a lot of collaboration. Um, they're in a very progressive elementary school. There's often um, mixed grades, but there doesn't have to be mixed grades. There's often no letter grades. There's often very little testing. And t- kids are much more focused. On, the school is much more focused on teaching kids critical thinking skills, writing skills, um, collaboration skills, much more so than just memorizing and being able to take a test. 
And so what are the code words that you'd see in the website? The website's hard to determine, but some schools will actually just outright call themselves traditional or progressive. Um, But Mm -hmm. the things to look for, because as I said, progressive, I do think is a somewhat of a spectrum term, project-based learning, experiential learning, collaboration, critical thinking. These are all strong tenets of a progressive education. Things that are much more focused on something more traditional, they will actually use the word traditional, talk about things based on tradition. They will talk about strong, rigorous academics. They might use the term even at a young age, college preparatory. Um, You can absolutely have a college preparatory education that is not traditional. There's a lot of schools that are very much college prep schools that are progressive, but traditional schools tend to focus on that a bit more. But rigor, academics, those are the terms you'll probably read more on a traditional website. Jane.com is a highly curated boutique marketplace featuring the latest in women's fashion, trends, accessories, children's clothing, and more. And Jane.com features hundreds of new products every day. So there is much to find and it helps you stay on trend at amazing prices. Here's how it works. Every day is a sale day at Jane.com. They offer a wide variety of categories and styles and you can basically find something for everyone in your life. Over 400 new products drop daily. Everything from clothing for the whole family, even your dog or cat, to fun finds, toys, and novelty items. And if you love a good deal, Jane.com is a site for affordable fashion. The products only last for a limited time, so blink and you will miss it. Visit jane.com humans. Find your next discovery at jane.com slash humans. Seize the savings. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. And I'm Andana Dayani. We decided to create a podcast to introduce you to the people who inspire us most. These are the dissenters. The people who just made a decision one day to break down the establishment and build a new one. In the greatest times of grief or even the most ordinary of circumstances, many heroes will rise. You just have to take that first step. So please tune in. We can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. There are heroes everywhere. Discover them. Become one. Is there a kind of kid who would do better at one or the other? Let's say most kids can do okay at at a range of different schools. What are the kids that you think like, you know what, they would do better with more structure. They would do better with less structure. That's a tricky question. I think that at a young age, you can tell as a parent if your child is flexible or not. Um, you know, we were going to go to grandma's house today, but grandma's sick, so we're not going to go visit grandma's. And obviously that would happen in a non-COVID world. Um, but, right. you know, when, when you have to cancel on grandma, I'm going to see grandma because, because she's sick, does your child have a meltdown? Or is your child flexible and, and can handle that? The flexibility of your child just in the day-to-day life kind of determines how your child's going to handle structure versus no structure. If your child is too rigid, putting them in an environment that is too structured, I, I think might set them off because at times things change. 
And if something has to change in the schedule and the child can't handle it, that can be really tough. At the same time, you put them in something that's too open-ended and they feel like they're just flailing because they don't know what's coming next. Um, so maybe something that is a little more in the middle might be better for that type of child. It's really hard to determine, but I think where you see that is how your child deals with day-to-day -day life. And I would watch how your child deals with your preschool. Is your preschool something where every portion of that day is scheduled? And if it is, is it too much for them? Do they thrive in that? Um, can they go either way? I think that's a good guide to look for. Um, whether or not they would be successful in a, something more structured or something less structured. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, can you ask your preschool teacher? But, you know, for some people, they haven't had in-person classes. And even if they've had in-person classes, maybe they're not getting a whole picture of the child because they've been, you know, adapting their day around all these COVID rules. So I'm curious, like, what can you ask? What can the school help out with? given the constraints that they have? I mean, it's it's challenging. Hopefully, if you're applying currently and you're about to find out if you're going, you know, where you're going to get into kindergarten, hopefully your child will have been in preschool more than just this one year on Zoom. And if they had a year before, do you want me to yes. change that answer? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just reality. You know, if if you've had a year prior to this one year of preschool, you know, hopefully the preschool director can help guide you into where they think your child may or will thrive. But realistically, this application season, everyone's flying blindly. Even the admissions people are probably flying blindly. People are flying blindly. They don't know these kids and these families the way they would in a normal application cycle. And it scares them. They are, they're trying to put together a class and they don't know the class they're putting together. Um, they are flying just as blindly as applicants who are applying to schools and don't really fully understand what these schools are all about. Um, so if it gives any sense of reassurance to applicants, schools are just as scared right now and nervous as you are because they don't know who they're taking. Um, so it's, it's hard. It's challenging on every level on both sides. Have you heard any schools kind of talk about their insecurities about choices? Are they taking more students because they're like, we, we have to hedge? Is there anything kind of going on that you've noticed as a theme coming from the school's ends? I think this year, because everyone is so unsure, you know, there's a notion of writing a first choice letter and letting schools know how interested you are. And yes, that begs the question, how do, how do I know how interested I am? How do you even um, express how interested you are? That's challenging. Um you know, to the best of your abilities, but if you've gone through this process and, you know, I'd hold on to the things that were less website focused and more, how was your interview even over Zoom? How was your child's assessment even over Zoom? How did that teacher who assessed your child over Zoom make your child feel? How did they walk away from that assessment? I mean, it's really, really hard, but you don't have much else to hold on to. So if that can hopefully guide your decision as a parent, you know, that made me really feel a attached to school B over school C, then I would let school B know that that's really where you felt the most at home. And that is your first choice. And if you're lucky enough to be offered a spot, you would eagerly accept because ultimately the schools, I think more so than ever, would love to know how interested you are because they don't have a lot of information on these families and these kids this year. And that's just one piece to give them something 
um, to know how interested someone is. And what has worked when you've talked to families about how to get their kids to have the best possible online assessment that they can have? It sounds so ridiculous to me. It is entirely ridiculous. And I (laughs) actually try to get parents to focus on their own behavior more so than their (laughs) child's. Um, You laugh, but I'm very serious because I assess every single kid over Zoom and I can watch what a parent does. And when a parent tries to correct the child or says, you know, look her in the eye or, you know, all these things that parents try to micromanage, parents would normally never see their child being assessed. And now because of COVID, they're watching their kids getting assessed. And I tell parents, if they cannot sit on their hands and bite their tongue, that they should just walk out of the room because the schools are almost watching the parents and what the parents are doing in reaction to their children more than they're watching the kids because they the expectations over what they kids are going to do over Zoom is not particularly high this year. Um, Again, less information for the schools on these children. I play it the same way with kids during Zoom as I do in person, which is empower the kid. Don't make them feel they're getting assessed. Don't make them feel they're getting tested or judged. Tell this kid that they get to go meet kindergarten teachers at all these different schools that they're looking at. And they have to pretend that they're a student and follow the directions and listen to the teacher. And, but they have to be, there's kind of like super secret spies and they have to come back and give me all the information about this teacher and what the teacher asked. And, but they have to be a really good student to be able to get the most information about the teacher. And then they can help pick their kindergarten because then they feel like they have some ownership in the process. They feel empowered and they're not going to be focused on, on disappointing a parent, disappointing a teacher, feeling judged. They're just going to have fun with it. And, enjoy it more. And if they're not enjoying it and if they are just not responding, what do you recommend that the parent does in that moment? I'm imagining you're not recommending getting mad at the child or reprimanding the child. Your child, not, not ideal in that situation. I think the first thing to do, if a a child looks at you um, with tears in their eyes or confused or doesn't know what, just encourage them. You've got this, you know, you've got this. If you can, if you don't know it, move on to the next one Um, and just be encouraging and don't force them to put an answer if an uncomfortable amount of time goes by, I, I would assume that um, who's ever administering the assessment will jump in. And you know, some schools might offer to try it on another day. Some schools might try to offer to do it in a group setting. Um, and some might just call it and say, we tried and that's the best we can do. And to be honest, in a normal situation where I would say you're done, like that kid's not getting in. I don't know that that actually would happen this year. I think the, the school are going to rely very heavily on the preschools this year to give them as much information as possible and say, okay, this kid had a tough assessment. They really struggled to connect on Zoom, but tell me what this kid's like day to day in a classroom. And, you know, it's hard because I can imagine for some people, if they're like, well, my child did thrive in a classroom setting, but they're not thriving on Zooms, nobody's going to be able to give them you know, to have a real sense of who this child is. And is that kind of, is that something that the parents should express? Like, listen, I don't know what to tell you. They have not responded well to Zoom. And I really hope that you can imagine them in the school setting where they have the opportunity to thrive. Yes. And, you know, at maybe once in a final letter, if you're writing your first choice letter. Right. More so hopefully the preschool will step in to do that. But no, also like, 
there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of kids go like going through zoom assessments for kindergarten and it's hard and they know that and everyone has in a normal year some of the situations that what's going on for people no school would ever consider but all bets are off this year like Parents have pulled their kids from preschool because they weren't feeling comfortable putting their child in person. They're in a pod. They're going to Zoom school. There are all these different scenarios. And it's kind of like all bets are off for this year. And how is that going to fare for next year? Like schools are going to let parents know imminently. Mm -hmm. And then this process starts again, right? Mm -hmm. So Um, I think that... It'll, it'll be interesting to see. So many schools start the process right after spring break and they'll start up tours for the next application season in spring and then continue their tours in the fall. I don't even know if people are going to be able to get on campus in spring um, to do tours. And I don't, right. I think because the prospect looks so good, thanks to the vaccine, to get kids actually back on campus by fall. I think a lot of schools, God willing, um, I think a lot of schools will actually hold off on spring tours to wait to get people back on campus campus because it it was a rough admission season this year across the board. So I want to tell you about another parenting podcast called Notes from the Backpack, and it's brought to you by the National PTA and hosted by Helen Worsmerland and Lawanda Tony. Each episode has an invited expert to address topics that are related to children's learning and development, and they're tackling questions that you want to have answers to. Everything from choosing online resources that will support your kids during school closures to helping your kids with learning differences as they navigate distance learning, talking to your kids about complex issues, Notes from the Backpack has listeners in every state and more than 60 countries. So if you're not already listening, get on board. So I've been listening to notes from the backpack and one really interesting episode I heard recently is how to help LGBTQ youth thrive. The host spoke with two representatives from the human rights campaign to help listeners understand more about LGBTQ kids and families. And the human rights campaign share shared her own experience raising a transgender son and her story was incredibly powerful. So you're going to want to give it a listen. Check out Notes from the Backpack wherever you listen to podcasts or go to notesfromthebackpack.com. All right. So for people who are going to start this process now, what are the things that you would say are important for them to start thinking about? I would say, first of all, wait until this admission season's over. No admissions director wants to start with anyone right now. And they're just going to be annoyed if you reach out to them right now. They need to get through this admission season um, in LA. That ends March 12th. I would say after spring break, I would start to see, you know, and if whatever city you live in, if there's tours in the spring, if they're available, sign up for a tour. I always say that it's easier if you can see tour, if you can see the schools and actually tour them prior to applying. Um, so you're not rushing to do it all at once. It can be really helpful, especially if you're two working parents, um, kind of spread out the process. Um, but I would start researching and I would start reading websites. I would start, go through the admissions 
tab on a website to see what the steps are because every admissions process is different for every school um, and see when they were going to start offering events. And it might be in April or May and it might not be till September um, and, and start to sign up for events as soon as you can. The more you can see of a school, the better. And I think that schools will find that while they haven't always had great attendance when they offer 10 different events a year, they're probably going to have better attendance next year for every event because people are going to be so excited that they can just actually get information about a school. And how many schools should a family apply to generally? Depends what city you live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I live and work in Los Angeles. I, for kindergarten, I would say four to five. Um, but I would say about every single school, ask yourself if this were the only school to which we were accepted, would we be happy? And if the answer is no, don't apply there. And go to your local public school and compare every school you have to that because you know you don't want to find yourself in a situation where you're only at one school that you're not going to accept an offer from. Um, I've heard stories and you'd know better than I about New York and New York. I've heard the numbers a bit higher than that of how many to which you should apply. It is. <laughs> um, I've heard it as crazy as eight to 10 schools in New York. Um, I, I would tell you never in a million years to apply to that many in LA. And realistically, you want to apply to schools that pedagogically kind of fall in line with one another. If you're applying to a school that is as progressive as they come and a school that is as traditional as they come, they all know where you're applying. And a lot of the applications ask where else you're applying and admissions directors ask preschools where you're applying and people like me where you're applying. And if they think that you're applying to schools that pedagogically don't fall in line with their school, they'll wonder if you have any idea what they're all about and what you actually want for your child. So try to find your list of schools that actually somewhat fall in line philosophically. And if you do feel like wow, I would be happier at my local public school than that some of these options. Mm-hmm. Just don't apply to those schools. Take Save yourself the trouble and send your child to the public school. And if you want to reapply in first grade or second grade or third grade, how hard is that process? So it's based on attrition, meaning you need a child to leave um, for a spot to open up. They don't just add space in first, second, third. It totally depends on who's leaving and how many applicants they have that year. I would say this year more than ever, it seems like there's a mass exodus out of Los Angeles and there are going to be spots in random grades at almost every school. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm seeing that across the board. I have admissions directors saying, do you have any great applicants for this grade or this grade? We have a lot of spots opening up. Um, So this particular year, while you might be choosing blindly, you might have a better shot because there actually might be space this year. Um, In a normal year, I would say it just depends. There are years where schools take kids in a few different grades and there are years where they don't have a single spot in first through fifth grade. I would say in Los Angeles, people tend to apply in fourth grade more than any other attrition year because that's when class size increases in public school. It goes from 28 to one to 36 to one, 36 kids in a classroom with one teacher. And so often families will say, we love our local public school, but we want to get out right before class size gets a bit too large. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's when they see the most applications is for fourth grade. 
wherever you're located, I think it's a good question to ask your local public school um, when that class size increases, um, because that might be a telling point as to, okay, we've gone to our public school for this long, and that might be a good transition point to apply out to private school. Um, and realistically, there's a lot of great public schools where people want to stay through elementary and apply out for sixth grade, and, and more and more schools have moved their middle schools to start in sixth grade. Um, and when we feel like when we were kids at all, with seventh grade started middle school, but more and more start um, in sixth grade now. And, and some middle schools even start in fifth grade, depending upon where in the country you are. So in general, let's go through what's expected of a child in order for them to be ready for kindergarten. And, you know, like, how does that look at this time of year? So you're the year before kindergarten, you're in preschool, pre-K. Where should a child be now? And what should they get to by the time they enter kindergarten? So what every kindergarten is looking for is a little something different, again, depending upon if you're something more traditional or progressive. Mm-hmm. But skills that go across the board are what they call kindergarten readiness. Can a child initiate play? Can a child sit in circle time? Can a child raise their hand? Can a child transition from activity to activity? Can a child follow one, two, three step directions? Is a child holding their pencil properly? How are their gross motor skills, their fine motor skills? Um, All schools like to see some readiness with all of this and some strong readiness with all of that. Then depending upon the school, they might start looking at some academic skills as well. Can the child write their own name? You know, in something more traditional, can a child write their name versus something more progressive? Can a child identify their name? Knowing their letters and sounds, you know, Montessori teaches uh, very phonetic based. So kids coming out of Montessori often um, uh, know their sounds before they know the names of letters and before they can identify letters. Um, so it depends what school you're coming out of. But some and some kids learn to identify letters and then learn the sounds. But other skills that they look at are rhyming, counting, shapes, patterns, tracing. Many schools have a child draw a self-portrait. They are not looking to see if your child is Picasso. They are looking, though, to see how your child pays attention to detail. They don't care if it's a stick figure, but does your child remember that they have eyes and nose and a mouth and hair on their head? And, you know, is a child drawing eyelashes or arms with fingers and all those little details um, are, are things that the school is looking at because um, that just shows how developed they are in certain areas. So by the summer, is there something that parents should be doing with their kids to make sure that they're prepared for kindergarten? Or, you know, I know for for some places, kids are overprepared for kindergarten because parents' expectation is that kindergarten is going to be a lot more uh, challenging or have a higher expectation academically than is what's actually happening. So what have you found and what do parents need to think about? So are you talking about what should parents be doing by this summer if their child is starting kindergarten in September? Yes. (laughs) Um, So this year, more than ever, I think it's important that parents focus on helping their children separate when they go to kindergarten. Because normally when they go to kindergarten, they've lived life in a normal way. They go to school every day. They go to their after school classes and they have playdates with friends and they travel and, and they do all of these things. And this year... If they're lucky, they go to school um, at most, 
And then they come home and they see people on FaceTime or may once in a while have a socially distant play date. Right. Um, But they're just very insulated right now with their family. And if they are lucky enough to be in school, many kids are still wearing masks and they have to keep six feet apart and they aren't getting that connection with kids and with teachers the way they are going to have again one day. So if we can really help kids focus on learning to rebuild those connections, I think it'll make it a lot easier when they start kindergarten. Great. Okay. So typically are there essays, not for the children to write, but for the parents to write for kindergarten? There what, what should what, what should people focus on? So while I wish there was a universal application and admissions directors, if you're listening, there should be a universal application. So true. Uh, <laughs> There aren't. You, there are a few things that are really important. The biggest one is look at the character count. Every school has a different character count. And some is you have 4,000 characters. And the thing to remember about that is they don't want to read 4,000 characters. So don't write 4,000 characters. Uh-huh. You know, answer the question briefly and efficiently and honestly. Make your child sound real, not ideal. But the other thing is, if they only allow 250 characters, that's not 250 words, that's 250 characters. And this part of this is a lesson in following directions. It's a little bit of a litmus test in that regard. And if you write 250 words, you're gonna have a problem on your application because they will let you submit it that way. But the school's gonna show, um, that the application's gonna show that you went over by however many characters. Read the character count, follow the directions and answer the question being asked. If you are asked, what is it about you know, school A that you love, don't sit and write three paragraphs on who your kid is. They weren't asking who your kid is. They asked mm-hmm. what it is about this school that really resonates with you or that you love. So um, no no ulterior motive. Like it's not like an inter, a job interview where you have your points that you have to get across. Correct, correct. And you want it to sound um, honest and um, real and heartfelt and and realistically, Proofread, 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 proofread. I cannot stress it enough. I am surprised on a daily basis by how many people either can't write or choose not to check their work. Um, And these things matter because they're paying attention. If you're a really strong writer, indicative of who your child could be. And and that matters. If your grammar's strong, if your punctuation's strong, Mm -hmm. or if it's just all careless errors and you're not using capitals where they belong because you think it's super casual, they pay attention to things like that. And that matters. Starting the new year off, getting life insurance should be on the to-do list. It's not a fun thing to talk about, but it's really important and Policy Genius can help you cross it off with ease. Policy Genius makes it easy for you to compare more than 30 top insurers at once and you can save over 50% in the process. And there is no hassle because their licensed experts work for you, not the insurance companies. So here's how it works. You go to policygenius.com and you work out how much coverage you need and you compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And then Policy Genius will compare policies starting as little as a dollar a day. And you may even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. So once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all of the paperwork, all of the red tape and everything that gives you just that kind of feeling that you just want it all to go away. 
If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they deal with everything. That's why they have five-star ratings across over 1,600 reviews. They've got great reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So make it the year you finally cross life insurance off your list and get protection for your loved ones. Go to policygenius.com and get started. You can save 50% or more by comparing quotes and start the new year with one less thing to stress about. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. When you want to say things about your child's uh, accomplishments, Mm -hmm. but you haven't been asked about your child's accomplishments, do they assume that the child speaks for themselves or the preschool director speaks for the child, but you don't need to say all of the amazing things about your child's accomplishments? Yes. And particularly when it comes to the anecdotes, they don't want the endless anecdotes in the application, except, Mm -hmm. you know, if there is a question and some, there are one or two schools that I've seen that have this question of, tell us about a character trait that you admire in your child and use an anecdote to, you know, show when they've exemplified this. Mm -hmm. Other than that, don't use the anecdotes. And Mm -hmm. often on an application, there is a spot that says, is there any additional info you'd like to share? And if in that case, you want to talk about how Johnny runs the fastest 50 yard dash in, in, I don't even know what track terms are, but (laughs) (laughs) um, or whatever their accomplishments are. He's won 16 soccer trophies by all means, as long as you're doing it in a way where it sounds like it's a fun thing driven by the child, not by parents who want to list their child's accomplishments on a kindergarten application. So is it sort of in all ways showing that you know who your child is, not that you're trying to make your child be somebody who they want? Yes, exactly. And and it's, um, they don't want parents who wear rose-colored glasses when it comes to their children. So if you have a child who exhibits leadership skills, yeah, you can talk about what a leader your child is, but you might also want to be really honest and say, you know what, but sometimes for little Johnny, there's a fine line between leadership and bossy, and we're working on that with him, and, and he's shown great development in that area. Um, so it makes them see that you see the whole picture of your child and not just the perfect in your child, because no child's perfect. And is that similar in the interviews? Any tips for interviews? Absolutely. Um, Interviews are a time for schools to not just get to know the child, but to get to know the parents. And is this, are, are these parents a good fit for our school community? And they want families that are warm and inclusive um, and that do know who their child is and speak about their child honestly, and also understand what the school's about. Um, I highly recommend rereading your applications before you go into an interview, because that's often used as talking points for the interview. Um, a lot of interviewers like to talk about parents' backgrounds, so be prepared to talk about yourself. What was your education like growing up? Um, How does that compare to what you want to give your child now? How are you going to be involved in the school? Schools really want parents who are going to be involved. Even if you're two working parents, you know, I think asking a question of we want to be involved, but we're busy working parents. How can we be involved? Um, These are all things that matter in the interview. Why do schools want to know where your education was? 
Because I think, well, I think twofold. It depends on the school and what education. They're asking often about your elementary and high school education because they're just curious how you were educated and how much you know about education styles and did that guide you towards what you want for your own child. Um, But in terms of on applications, often they ask about parent uh, college and grad school information. And that's especially at a high school or a K through 12 school, because if you have schools that would they would deem highly impressive um, on the application, the chances of your child going to one of those schools is slightly increased and they value that. And anything that parents should know, like if let's say parents are divorced or they aren't getting along or one parent doesn't want to show up to the interview or parents are very affectionate with each other. Is there anything technical that parents should be thinking about or should they just be their authentic selves? Um, Don't be your authentic selves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Unless your authentic self is just a little (laughs) bit charming, um, just a little bit reserved. Um, You want to be warm. You want to be friendly. You don't want to be, have public display of affection with your spouse (laughs) um, or partner. You do not want to be fighting with your partner. You don't want to talk over your partner, interrupt your partner, whether you're married, separated, divorced, or we're always a single parent um, and you have a co-parent. They want parents that are on the same page for their kid. Both parents should talk in the interview without someone correcting them. Both parents should ask questions. Both parents should answer questions. Um, And if your partner or spouse or ex-partner or spouse says something that you don't like, bite your tongue. You don't want to correct them. Um, You just want to make it seem like you're there together for the sole cause of your child because you guys are on the same page when it comes to your children at the very least. And if you're not, or one parent doesn't, have the capacity to show up to an interview, you know, do you make an excuse for them? Do you say very honestly, I'm the one who's focused on this interview? Or if you're a single parent, is there any reason why one parent can't represent? If you're a single parent, there's nothing wrong with that in any way, shape or form. I don't think any school would have any issue with that. Um, And there's nothing to try and justify. Um, But if you are two parents together or separated that can't come together for the sake of a child, that is tough. And um, if one parent is not willing to show up, I think the parent that does attend has a right to say something along the lines of, this matters to me for my child more than anything. And without going into detail, um, while things aren't always easy for ex-spouse and I, we, I feel it's very important that my child has consistency at this school. And we want a school like this to provide that consistency for our child. Something along those lines. I, I'm not going to lie. That's a tough situation. If a parent can't show up, like it refuses to show up to an interview, that's mm-hmm. not going to go over extremely well. I mean, I don't know what just made me think of that, but I was just trying to think of all the different scenarios. Like um, it, it's not going to look good. I, I don't want to scare someone who has a spouse that's not going to show. A single parent's no issue, but a contentious divorce where one parent won't show up, that's going to be an issue. What if you just don't have the kind of job where you can show up? you're performing surgery and you absolutely can't get the day. You know, if, if someone is in, is a surgeon or has a surgery 
hopefully they have a regular schedule and they can plan in advance. And if a last minute emergency surgery pops up, by all means, call the office, the admissions office and move your interview. Just move it to another time. If they're just too busy in their work world to show up ever, that's going to, that's going to affect them in the process because the school doesn't care who you are. If you can't make the time at some point to show up for your child's interview, being at that school clearly isn't that important to you. (laughs) How do you really feel about it? (laughs) (laughs) And now for listener questions. The first question is, my husband is permissive to his two kids who are my stepkids. He's got 100% custody. And I worry about how we're going to raise our baby as I support authoritative parenting with guidelines, boundaries, lessons, morals, love, yada. How can I help my husband get on board? Okay. So the first reminder is, it's so wonderful that you're paying attention to this, that you're thinking about this. It's important to remind yourself that we can only control our parenting. We cannot control our partner's parenting or anybody else's behavior. So the important thing is to determine, which it sounds like you have, what path you want to take, what your intention is in your parenting. And then ideally, you talk about it with your partner and you hear what he has to say it sounds like there is some choice that he's either made consciously or unconsciously to have fewer boundaries. And perhaps he does not think that, you know, boundaries is loving enough. And so he's been more permissive. That's a trap that a lot of people fall into. The question is, how can you talk to him about raising your baby together with the same amount of love but just some more boundaries. That's what it sounds like. You want that same amount of love that goes into the permissive parenting, the same amount of sensitivity, but more boundaries. And the tricky part is that not only are you asking him to change his parenting style, but it's also inevitably painful to think that what you're saying might be, I don't approve of how you've raised your kids before our child that we had together. So your other two kids. And that's a big statement. So it's just important to keep all of those things in mind and think about how you can gently talk to him about what makes him uncomfortable about boundaries. Is he even aware that he's uncomfortable with them and what boundaries he can get on board with? The most important thing to keep in mind is if you can't get on the same page, it is more important that you have a connection in your relationship and that you guys can figure out how to do this together differently than it is for you to be on the same page, but contentious. So just keep that in mind because actually I got a lot of questions about how can I get my husband on board or my partner on board? And the more important question is, if you can't get them on board, how can you parent the way you intend to parent without that other co-parent being on board with you, because more likely than not, you're only going to be able to control your parenting and you're much better off focusing on that 
Hi, Dr. Aliza. I'm loving your podcast. I feel like I'm doing so much reading, so much listening and researching to try to raise good humans. And I share as much as I can with my spouse, but there's very little response. Is there any suggestions you have on getting him on the same page? So I would go back to what I said before, which is as much as it's hard to believe and it's hard because you read, you do all this work, you're so committed to being the best parent you can be. It's hard when you think, okay, now I've figured out what I feel comfortable with. I feel like I know what's best for my child, but I have another partner here. I have another parent in the picture and they're not on board. Trust that your parenting is enough that your parenting does make a difference and that it's actually quite beneficial for kids to experience different personalities, different approaches. You know, it helps them understand the world and communicating with people in different ways. It only takes one sensitive, loving care provider, parent, adult, grown up to connect with you and help you thrive. So as wonderful as it is to have everybody on the same page, it's okay to let go of that control, especially if it helps have a better relationship with your partner because you're not trying to fix them or change them or make them better parents. And of course, here and there, if you think something will be interesting to them, by all means, show them the article, have them, you know, have a listen to a podcast episode that makes sense for you. But Pick wisely because if you're constantly saying, oh, you should read this book, you should look at this article, you should listen to this podcast, it can end up feeling like what you're really saying is you're not a good parent. I've figured it out. And so that's it. If anything, I would say if you're in the car and you want to play something together because you're both interested in listening to a book on tape or a podcast or whatever, is it called a book on tape anymore? No, it's not an audiobook, then you're doing it together versus I did this. I know, you know, I've seen the light and now I'm trying to impart this on you. You'll probably have better luck. But again, for all of you who want everybody to be on board, I totally get that. Unfortunately, we can only control ourselves. So we just have to kind of come to terms with that piece of it, which is, it's hard to do, but it's actually an important part of our parenting journey. It's also just as children get older, let's say as the first listener asked about a baby, you know, being on the same page when you have a baby feels different than when you have a toddler and an older child and into school age because discipline practices come into play and other things where you actually do see different behaviors based on your parenting behavior and you see different emotional responses and connections. And sometimes that does more work than telling anybody best practices. Also, always keep in mind that what looks like sensitive, permissive parenting or authoritarian parenting can often just be a personality thing. Like, Someone just has a louder voice, came from a louder family, so they sound bossier, but actually they're very sensitive and loving. It's just the way they move through the world and, you know, variations of that. Okay. Hi, Dr. Pressman. I was just listening to your episode on discipline and it was extremely helpful. I was wondering if you have any advice on how to handle a child throwing things when they get frustrated. 
Typically, I take the item away. I'm wondering if that's considered punishment. Okay, so here's what I would say. It probably feels like punishment if a child is throwing something and you take it away, Um, but it's a natural consequence. It's not like you're seeing them do something and yelling at them and putting them, you know, in the other room or taking away their iPad arbitrarily when it had nothing to do with the iPad. Really, you're saying, if I'm understanding this correctly, you threw the block at the wall. I'm going to take the block away. It looks like you're really frustrated. So I actually, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to manage it. But you also want to give your child the tools. It sounds like when your child's getting frustrated, you might say, oh, that block is really frustrating you or that whatever that whatever's going on is really frustrating you and you want to throw this. I get it. That's going to hurt the wall or that's going to hurt your sibling or that's going to mess up my table, whatever it is. You know, if it's not something you can throw or it's not something that's safe to throw, then you can give the reason why and you can take it and you can say, you have a choice. You can keep playing with this but we can't throw it. You can do, and then list all the things you can do with it. You can build with it. You can put it on another block. You can put a blanket over it. You can use it with dolls. You can dance with it. We cannot throw this block. So you have the choice. You can play with it or I can take it if it's making you too upset. If it's too hard for you to keep it in your hand, then I can take it for now and we can get back to it later. So if the child then says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to stay calm and I'm going to use it in the way I'm supposed to be using it, give them a chance. And then if they throw it again, you can say, you know what? You're showing me that you're just too frustrated to play with this block right now. We're going to put it away and we can try again tomorrow. And that's it. And it might upset your child. It's a boundary. It's totally fine. You've explained yourself. You've expressed that you understand what they're going through, but that you really need to keep their body safe, the wall safe, whatever it is that that's the damaging thing. Now, if they're throwing a soft doll, it really doesn't matter unless it's just upsetting you and you could just let them do it because they're just frustrated and then you name the feeling. You're frustrated and tell them what you're seeing, what you're observing, try to do it without judgment and see if that helps them feel a little bit more understood and maybe they can even move on. Okay. The next question is, hi, Dr. Aliza. I love your podcast. I try to follow your advice. I have a three-year-old preschooler, but no matter what I do, the mornings are so difficult. Every morning when he wakes up, he asks if it's a school day. And when I tell him it is, he immediately starts crying. Usually I get him ready and fed without too much trouble, but leaving the house is next to impossible. He prolongs it so much. Getting dressed takes forever. Now at drop-off, because of COVID, the teachers meet us outside at the car and then they take the kids in. My son tries to hide from the teacher and sometimes cries when she's trying to walk him in. What I wanted to just suggest is you mentioned that your child cries when they, they ask if it's a school day and then when they find out it is that they cry. So I'm imagining, and I don't know for sure, that your child only has school maybe three days a week or it's, you know, it's not something that's consistent every day. So what I would recommend is get a visual calendar, put it up in clear view with a picture of the school and your child on the days when there is school, 
and a picture of your child at home on the days that are home. Explain that to your child. Say when there's, you'll know if it's a school day because we'll look and we'll see that picture of you at school. And we'll know if it's not a school day when we have a picture of you at home. And that way, instead of thinking about it and processing it in that moment, right before bed, you can look at this chart and you can see what's tomorrow going to look like. Let's talk about how the day is going to go. And then again, in the morning, you can say, well, let's see if it's a school day. And you can look at the big visual chart. And that way, it's not just a surprise each time. And that's easier sometimes to prepare for. And now then, you know, your child might still cry just like at drop off, which is the other part of this that I want to talk about. If you understand what your child is going through and you let your child know that you understand If you can take a pause and take a deep breath so that you can regulate yourself in order to be available to your child in those moments when your child's having trouble, then you've let your child know you can handle their big feelings. And that's going to be really important, especially because it is really disappointing for some kids to find out it's a school day. And it is really hard to send them off to school in this strange time when you can't go into the classroom. And it does feel like an extra difficult separation and people are in masks. But your ability to take a pause and not panic is going to let your child know that even when they're upset, that you can feel for them, but you all, you know, you have compassion, but you also have confidence that they've got this, that it's not going to make you upset because you're not worried because you know that they're safe, that you're sending them to a safe place. So you don't need to convince them not to have the big feeling. It's about being able to sit with them as they're having that big feeling without changing your inner confidence that they're going to be okay. Now, as for stressing you out for the rest of the day, the only thing I would say is ask the teachers, how did they do? How did my child do? Is my child crying the whole rest of the time? My guess is that if your child is fine, after they've recovered from saying goodbye to you, that this is just more of a really hard moment of separation, but not an all day thing. So once you find out from the teachers, a confirmation that your child actually adapts, then you can take that moment to say to yourself, wait a second, you know, that was really hard. It's natural for me not to feel comfortable with my child being upset but I am sending my child to school, which is a gift. And I'm sending my child to an experience that is challenging, but that he's capable of. And that's how I build a resilient kid. Or that's one of the ways that we build resilience. And that will help you get through your day feeling like, okay, this was a big parenting challenge, but I took it on. My kid took on a big challenge. We're doing great. And we're going to be the stronger people for it. And always remember that it's not getting your child to do something happily. It's getting your child to understand that even though they don't want to do it, they can do it, that they're safe, that you see what's going on for them and that you believe they can do this hard thing. And hopefully in the actual experience of school, they're finding moments to enjoy themselves, which you'll be able to ask the teachers about. and bring up later in the day with your child. They can even do a rosebud and thorn ritual with you where 
You hear about their day through the rose, the good thing, the bud, the thing they're looking forward to, and the thorn, the thing that was crummy. I actually prefer doing the bud last because it's positive, something to look forward to, but you still address, you know, like what went well, what was kind of cruddy, and then what they're looking forward to. And my last question is, Hi, Dr. Lisa. I just listened to your podcast on praise. It made total sense. I'm trying to stop praising and commenting on every little thing my child does, but I'm so used to doing it. I feel like it's awkward when I don't say anything. And sometimes I don't know how to respond. For example, my five-year-old just read a book and sounded out some hard words, and I found myself awkwardly trying to find things to say. Can you give some examples or tips for transitioning away from excess praise? I totally hear you. And that is a noble effort. Remember, please take everything that you hear on this podcast and anywhere, you know, throw out some of it that you just feel uncomfortable with. So let's say you are now conscious that you don't want to overpraise. You're still going to do it sometimes. You're still, you know, this isn't about getting this all the time. And I hope that you'll think that way with any parenting expert to just say like, okay, I'm going to take what feels comfortable for me, but if I'm not my authentic self, it's just not going to work. So one thing to practice is making observations that are kind of judgment-free. So they're not about praise, but you can affirm, of course, when your child is working really hard or has been trying to get through these difficult words. So instead of saying like, you're the smartest person in the world, you could still notice that they just worked really hard at something. It's just about making those observations rather than making them about how awesome, brilliant they are in that moment. And having said that, again, I don't want to take away from your authentic self, but when you can just make more observations that help us get to know ourselves, so... Anytime your child is doing something, if you have the inclination to praise them, try to think about what else could I say that is an observation? I noticed that you just read a really hard word. That's all. And that still feels really good. It's just not over the top, constant judgment about how awesome they are. Because again, the other side of that would be if you're not praising, is there something wrong? you know, and so you can, that's how you build this kind of need for praise. And then of course, challenging ourselves to sit comfortably with not saying something sometimes, of course, sometimes you know that your kids need some feedback and you just want to make the feedback a little bit less necessary at all times, pull it back a little bit because we want them to have intrinsic motivation. But certainly if you need to just sit silently and it feels awkward, one thing to remember is, let me check, are they enjoying themselves? If they're enjoying themselves and they notice that they read a really hard word and they're they're continuing on, you don't need to say a thing. Because actually, if they are enjoying themselves and they are internally motivated, saying something might interrupt that process. So just getting comfortable, praising them in your mind, saying every wonderful thing you want to say in your mind, And knowing that that general feeling will be a part of your connection, but you don't need to say those words all the time and trying to observe more and judge less. And that should help with those awkward silence moments. And then of course, 
sometimes ignore what I'm saying and just praise away. Thank you for listening and for sending your questions. I have so many more I'm excited to get to and I hope you have a wonderful week.